Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. We are finally getting into the section where Peter starts to tell us what to do. We've been in this whole long section in the chapter 1 on down through verse 10, of which there's a, he has a little, a little instruction, but mostly it's just preparation, it's just reminders, it's telling this, these churches who are in, I've told you, they're, they're in modern day Turkey, but at this time they're part of the Roman Empire, and they're coming under persecution. Whereas 10 years ago, the, the empire couldn't have cared less about Christians. They're starting to get suspicious about Christians. They're starting to get worried about Christians. They are afraid since the Christians don't worship the gods. They're fearful that the gods will turn on the empire if there's this large group of people in the empire that don't worship the gods. And so they're starting to get pressure. They're starting to get persecuted. We don't know exactly what's happening in Turkey at this time, but we know what's happening in some other places around the Roman Empire. Christians are losing their jobs. Christians are losing their property and their houses. They're, they're being evicted. They're being exiled out of their provinces. In some cases, they're losing their lives. Uh, we do know in Rome, Christians are being put into the Colosseum and, and are dying. Uh, Christians are being killed. So Peter's been writing to these Christians who are in, in a, an, an area of the world where the government has turned on them, and the culture has turned on them. It used to not care, and now it cares, and it, it, it is persecuting them. And so we're just going to look at the first couple verses here. From here on out in the rest of the book, it's all Peter telling us how to live. Okay, this is what you need to do. And he goes through all these different groups of people in society, all these different situations, we're going to look at the first couple verses today, which is just his sort of general principles. And then after that, he'll get into all these different specific. But let's look at what he says generally. I'm just going to read chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is how he begins. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter begins, in my translation, I'm reading from the New International Version, Dear friends, if you've got a more literal translation you're reading, like the, the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version, it probably says something like beloved or loved, because that's the word Peter uses. He uses the word loved. He's calling them beloved. He's reminding them. We've seen him do that all throughout the beginning of this letter. He's reminding them of who they are. You are loved by God. Now, that's a powerful thing, I think, to say to people who are being persecuted. People who are being persecuted for their faith, because they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they worship him and they worship him exclusively, which is really the problem. But Peter reminds them, you are still loved. There's something in us, isn't there, that just thinks if things are going well, God must be pleased, and if things are going poorly, God must be angry. And Peter's reminding them of a truth you will find throughout the Bible. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you. God is not punishing you. God punished Jesus. You will never be punished if you are a believer in Christ. It, it won't happen. It can't. Scripture says when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees what Jesus did. Somehow, when we accept Christ, 
All the wrong we did is transferred to Jesus, and all the right he did is transferred to us. Somehow, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as we are. He sees us as we will be. Because the Bible says one day we will be like Christ. That's where all this is headed. It is predestined, Scripture says. It's going to happen. You can't stop it. One day we will all be like Christ. And somehow when God looks at us now, that's what he sees. The righteousness of Christ. The the goodness of Christ. He doesn't see all the junk. And he's not mad. These people who are suffering for being Christians, Peter says to them, Beloved, you who are loved by God. Wow, that's an important one to hang on to when things are not going right. When your world is turning around on you, when things start to go wrong, when the culture comes against you, when you think, wait a minute, what did I do? To remember, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you are loved by God. And scripture says, that will never change. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That nothing will ever change that God loves you. Now, yes, because he loves you, we're told he disciplines us. He trains us. And as anyone knows, discipline's no fun. (laughs) No one likes being disciplined. Training is hard. And the scriptures say over and over again, and Peter will say it several times, God will use suffering in this world to train us, not to punish us. You're never being punished if you're a Christian. God is never going to punish you. That's done. But he is going to train us. And scripture says even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. So if God learned through suffering, we will as well. That's what's happening to these folks in Turkey. That has happened to Christians down through the ages. It certainly has happened to us and will happen to us. God will use the fallenness of our world, the the suffering, the things that go wrong, God will use that to train us. But we are always beloved. Beloved, Peter says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. We've heard both those two words before. I told you one of them means you live away from home and the other means you live away from your people. And both those things, Peter has already told us and he reminds us again, he's reminded us that God loves us and he's reminded us that this isn't our home. That ultimately, these aren't our people. And both those things are true. Like, we we know that we're loved by God. And that should make us just these incredibly confident people. Nothing will ever change that. There's nothing you can do. You cannot mess that up. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you any less. You have this incredible confidence. Wherever we go, wherever you are, whatever's happening, you're loved by God. And this isn't home. And if you've ever lived in another culture, then you know how that feels. So as I was doing research for this, and I'm looking at like the, these words and what they mean and, and doing some, some research on the internet, I keep getting these videos pulled up of people who are saying things like, I've li- I'm an American living in London, and this is the crazy way the British brush their teeth. Because... They're, you know, I'm an American and they're Brits. And I saw one from a woman who said, I've lived in Britain for 25 years. I married an Englishman. I raised my children in Britain. We are a British family. Here are the things I still do not understand about the British. She's lived 25 years, lived her whole adult life in Britain. But it's not her people. 
it's not her home. It's not where she came from. And so there's always things about it that are a little weird. It's like, really? Corn as a pizza topping? You know, I, I'm, just, I'm just not, I'm not buying it, right? Uh, ask me someday about snow cone toppings in Singapore. Wow, was that an eye-opener. It's not home. They're just things, they're just slightly off. You're loved by God. That's so incredible. It's so encouraging. And they put corn on their pizza. What is wrong with this? This isn't home. Both those things are true for us as believers. That, that incredible sense of confidence in knowing God loves us and that just uh, things just aren't quite right that pervades the world for us because we live far from our home right now and we live far from our people. And isn't it true? Like if you think you're gonna stay somewhere a long time, then that's very different than if you think you're just visiting. If you're a tourist to a place, you don't learn the language. You don't get deeply involved in the culture. Even if your company just sends you, if your company were to send you to France for two years, how French would you become? Not very. Because you know you're not staying. You know it's temporary. You know that you're just there for a little while. Compared to you're accused of treason and you lose your citizenship and they kick you out of the country. You're never coming back. Those would be such different experiences. Elizabeth and I are, you know, we've got this great house. We've had it since we moved here 11 years ago. It has served us so well. Our two of our boys now are grown and moved out. We just have our daughter left, but she'll be gone in a couple of years. We're starting to have those discussions that some of you have had. What are we going to do next? What are we going to do with this house? Like it was great when we had a whole family and we had friends and there were kids in it every weekend. And what are we going to do with this house now when it's just us? Are we going to stay in it? And are we going to like invite people to come live with us? Because we've done that before and loved it. Or are we going to sell it and, and get something a little smaller? And the decision we make, wow, that will really affect how I treat that house. Like if I think I'm staying in that house long term, I need to change some stuff because I don't want 25 years from now to be walking up all those stairs to get to my bedroom. Something's got to be done on the main floor. And you can't get in that house with going upstairs. We got to fix that. I don't want to be doing that 25, 30 years from now. If this is your forever home, then that's very different than, yeah, I live here for a little while. And as Christians, none of us live in our last house. I mean, you may, you may say you do. You may say, I've got friends in North Carolina. They're getting ready to retire. And so they built a house and the, the wife's just like, that's it. I'm never moving again. This is it. This is my last house. I will go from this house to a facility. That is it. That's the only way I'm ever moving again is because I can't take care of myself anymore. But we know as believers, we do have another home. Even this house you've prepared for yourself here now, it's not your last one. You have at least one more because Jesus told us that in the Gospel of John. When he told his disciples, I'm going away, and they all freaked out, you're what? He's like, no, no, I have to go away. I've got to prepare a house for you, 
I've got to prepare a place for you in my father's kingdom. So when you come, you have a place to stay. All of us have one more house out there. We have one more place we're going to stay. This is not the end. Even if you've lived in Atlanta all your life and you plan on living in Atlanta all your life and you plan on dying in Atlanta, this is not the last place you'll live if you're a follower of Christ. You will live so much longer in Jesus' kingdom. Peter says, I urge you, you're foreigners. This isn't your home. You're exiles. These these aren't your people. You got one more place you're going to get to. Remember that. As you're making decisions now, remember, this is not your final resting place. It's not your final house. Whatever it is that you have here in this world, it's not the last. You have another home waiting for you in Jesus' kingdom. This is not the end. I urge you, Peter says, you who are loved by God, but also you who are strangers, your foreigners, your exiles, to abstain from sinful desires. Now again, if you're reading a more literal translation, like I looked at some different ones, the the ESV, the English Standard Version, says the passions of the flesh. The New American Standard says fleshly lusts. The word he uses is the word flesh, and in his world, flesh is Christianese. Have you ever heard of that, Christianese, where there's all these words in Christendom that don't make sense to anyone else? Are you washed in the blood? I wouldn't really say that to someone who doesn't know what that means in the faith. Are you saved? Like Saved from what? What exactly, what, what, what are we talking about? Every group always has their own language. Any group you've ever been a part of has had all their own slang and all their own sayings. Every family has it, the inside jokes, all the little things that are just known to them. And Christianity has it, and these guys had it in the first century. And the word flesh, meaning, you know, your, your, your skin, meat, that's a slang term for them in the first century. It, it, it means for them your old life before you were a believer. You know, almost everybody, the, 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 the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, they're written from the late 40s to the early 60s. And Jesus just died and rose again in the early 30s. This is like 20 some odd years later. There's not a lot of people who grew up in the church at this point. Almost everybody is a convert. They have an old life before they were Christians. They didn't grow up knowing Jesus. They grew up knowing Hera or Apollo or Mithras or whomever. And they have become Christians. And the Christian writers use this term flesh to mean the old you. The the stuff you used to do. So one Christian writer in in the New Testament, he'll be saying, look, when you guys are trying to tear each other apart, you're living in the flesh. You're living the old life. That's the old you. Stop doing that. And Peter says that as well. He says, you need to stay away from the desires of the flesh. Now, okay, this word desires is one of my absolute favorite words in the Bible. So you just have to humor me for a few minutes, okay? The word is epithumia. If you've hung out here before, you've heard me talk about it. Athumia, in the language of the Bible, that means a desire. That's something you want. It's their word, just like our word, oh, I I desire that, I really want that. That's their word, thumia. They use epi the way we use arch with another word. So you have bishops 
and you have, arch, you have the archbishop, meaning the guy who's in charge of all the bishops. You've got deacons and you've got an archdeacon, the guy who's in charge of the deacons. Or we use arch to mean like the main guy, the, the really serious one. You know, the hero has enemies, but then he has an arch enemy, an arch nemesis. They use epi, the same, we use, the same way we use arch. It means the main one, the most important, the one over everything else. Do you hear what, P- what Peter is saying? You need to abstain from all the overarching desires of the flesh. All the things in your life that used to be so important before you became a follower of Christ. Peter says, you gotta watch out for those. Literally, he says, you gotta hold those away from yourself. You gotta abstain from them. You gotta keep them away. Because there's some things in our lives, when we become Christians, wow, God just takes them away. I mean, you probably know people who were drug addicts or alcoholics or whatever, and they become a believer, and it's just gone. They never wanna take a drink again. They never struggle with drugs after that. And then there's people who are drug addicts and alcoholics and pride addicts and all sorts of other addicts, and God doesn't take it away. And I don't know why he chooses what he chooses. He generally doesn't feel the need to explain himself. There's things in our lives that we come to God and we say, oh, please take this away. And he's like, sure, boom, and it's gone. It's just never a problem again. And there's things in our lives that we pray that over and over again and over again, and he does not take it away. He does not remove it. It's one of these. It's a a sinful desire, as the NIV calls it, or or a, a fleshly lust, as one of the other translation calls it. It's some overarching desire, something that was so important to us before we knew Jesus. And wow, it's still important to us. Though we know Jesus and we know that's not who he wants us to be. Whatever it is, whether it's money and greed, whether it's pride, whether it's power, whether it's relationships, we all have things in our lives. Peter had them, these guys had them, we have them. Things in our our old lives that we know this is not who God wants us to be. But oh, it still calls to us. It's an over arching desire. And Peter says, wow, you need to stay away from that because it's waging war on your soul. You know, those things claim to be our friends. That one one pastor, as I I was um, listening to some sermons about this, one one pastor defined an epithumia. He said, this is the thing in your life that if you don't have it, you're nothing. If you don't have it, what's the point? Again, could be money, could be success, could be a relationship, could be status. It's different for everybody. But it's that thing in your life that you've got to have. And wow, if you don't have that, you're not sure whether you should go on. Peter says, you gotta get away from that. It is trying to kill your soul. It is not your friend. It says your friend. It says you need me. You need me. If I'm not there, you're nothing. It's trying to kill your soul, Peter says. Keep it away from you. Stay away. Don't mess with it. 
Don't go back there. Don't play with it. Don't think, oh, sure, that'll be okay a little bit. Keep it away, he says. Abstain. Literally, hold it away from yourself. Just don't let it near you. Just say no. Boundaries. Don't mess with that, Peter says. Again, it's different for everybody. The things that you struggle with probably aren't the things that I struggle with, probably aren't the things that the person next to you struggles with. But boy, we've all got them. We've all got the things in our lives, these overarching desires. We have to have this to be okay. Peter says, it's trying to kill you. Stay away. Now that's the don't. Don't do this. Stay away from this. This is the bad thing. Verse 12 is the do. Here's what you ought to be doing. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I want to read that to you again the way I think most of us want to hear it. This is what we want it to say. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. We want it to say that if we will live right, if we will live good lives, if we will do what is right before the world, then the world will say to us, oh, of course, I see. That the world will come to us and say, oh, what is it about you that's so different? Tell me. Oh, or even in the case of one case I know of in scriptures, what must I do to be saved? We want to think that if we live well in front of the world, that if we will just do what is right, then they will see our good deeds and they will glorify God. And that is true. I mean, every word I read the first time is absolutely in this verse. I just left out some of the parts. I left out some of the painful parts. Because you heard what it actually says. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong. There is no promise in scripture that if you live well, if you live honorably, if you are kind and generous and just with people, that they will treat you well. In fact, there's kind of the opposite. (laughs) There's kind of a promise that if you live a really, really good life in a non-Christian world, you will be called evil. You will be accused of doing wrong. You will be accused of harm if you do what is right. Because they absolutely will glorify God. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. When? On the day he visits us. Jesus returned. Remember, that's what he told us earlier. Set your hope on the return of Christ. Set your expectation that everything will work out. It's not here. It's not now. It's not if I can just show my neighbors by my life that everything will work out. That's not a promise. I mean, praise God if that works, and absolutely, as he says, live such good lives in front of your neighbors. But there is no promise that your neighbors will see that and respond well. In fact, Peter seems to think they're going to call you names. They're going to accuse you of doing what is wrong. 
So folks, if your 13-year-old neighbor comes to you, 13-year-old girl comes to you and says, oh, I am so confused. I don't understand. I don't like things girls like. I don't like dresses. I don't like makeup. And I don't want to do crafts. And I don't want to sit around in those groups. I like sports. And I like computer games. And I want to learn to program. I want to do science. My doctor says I'm really a boy. And I should take hormones and have surgery and be a boy. What do you think? If you say to her, wow, that's hard. That's really hard. I remember being 13, and I didn't know who I was either. And I'll tell you a secret. Nobody does. All those girls you see in a group that look so confident, wow, they're just as worried as you are. Every teenager on the planet feels uncomfortable in their own skin. Everyone feels this way. And I know a lot of girls who play sports. And I'm willing to bet Serena Williams could beat me blindfolded. And she's a girl. And did you know the very first computer program on the planet was written by a girl? And there's girls going tens of thousands of kilometers a second in the space station right now? I don't, I don't think you have to be a boy to like science or to like sports. My daughter loves video games. I make her put on oven mitts when she plays Mario Kart with me, and she still beats me. Oh. I, I don't know, how about, how about before the hormones and the, and the surgery and all, but let's, why don't we just talk about this for a while? Let's call up Serena Williams. I mean, I know tons of girls that love all the same things you do. I, I, you sound like a girl to me. Wow, if you say that to a 13-year-old, you were gonna be called evil. If you give a loving, kind, generous answer to someone who is confused and doesn't understand what is going on and whose body is going through massive changes that we, if any of you remember puberty, oh my gosh, none of us had any idea what was going on in our own skins. If you are kind and generous and merciful to someone at that time, you will get called evil. You will get posted about People will hate you if you are generous and merciful, if you live a good life and are kind to people and listen to them. They will not call you good. And Peter told you that was going to happen. Live such good lives in front of the pagans, Peter says, Not that they come to you and say, oh, what must I do to be saved? Although if that happens, praise God. Again, I know of one story in the Bible. In all the Bible, I know of one story where someone looks at something a Christian did and comes to them and says, what do I have to do to be saved? And wow, um, that's a heck of a story. It's Acts 16 if you want to go and read it sometime. That's a heck of a story. I totally understand why that guy fell on his knees in front of Paul and said, what do I have to do to be saved? But that's pretty much the only time, even in the Bible, most of the time you live well and people ignore you or they oppose you. Live well anyway. That's not an excuse to stop living well. 
That's not an excuse to stop doing what is right. Your neighbor's persecuting you is not an excuse in God's eyes to stop loving your neighbor. You absolutely keep loving your neighbor. You absolutely keep living such a good life because if they never say a word here, when the sky cracks open and Jesus descends, God will be glorified by what you did. Your God will get glory because you lived well, even when people hated you for it. Do you hear what Peter's saying? On the one hand, there's stuff in our lives, old stuff that we need to stay away from because it wants to kill us. And there's stuff coming up that we need to embrace. There's things that are gonna happen that we need to embrace. We need to love people anyway, even though they're not lovable. We need to do what is good and right and generous. We are to look like Jesus. We are to be merciful and kind. We are to be generous and loving and good. And wow, what did they do to him? I mean, it's not like everybody thought he was great. They are constantly trying to come up with ways to silence him or kill him. That's our calling, is to look like Jesus, to stay away from the stuff that wants to kill us, the old parts of our life, and to embrace living such good lives that even though people say we're horrible for doing it, that God gets glorified when he returns. And I guarantee you that was true for them and it is true for us. For all of us in this room, you have both of those things in your life. You have things that you need to stand away from and you know it. You have, as Peter says, epithumia of the flesh, overarching desires, things you so want that you know are not part of your life as a follower of Christ. God does not want you to do that. He does not want you to indulge in that. He does not, that no, you need to keep away from that. We all have those things in our lives and we all have things in our lives. We all have people in our lives where we need to embrace living well. Not run away, not hiding, not trying to stay under the radar but not being arrogant jerks either. Embrace living good lives in front of the world that though they accuse you of terrible things, God is proud of you. God is proud of you. So I'm gonna pray over us. I'm gonna ask the Spirit to talk to you about those two things. What are those things in your lives? What are the things that you need to stay away from? It's stuff that you know, I shouldn't be messing with this. This isn't good for me. This harms me. Anything in your life that you're like, okay, no, I, that, I just got to put that aside. I got to abstain. I've got to fast. I'm not doing that anymore. And where are the places in your life that you need to embrace? You need to say, yep, this is hard, and nobody's going to thank me for this, and I'm not going to get credit for this, but it's the right thing to do. It's the good and right way to live. I'm going to do this anyway. Because it makes Jesus proud. I'm going to pray and ask God's Spirit to speak to us. What are those things? What are the places where we need to abstain? And what are the places where we need to embrace living right? So that the world sees it, even though they don't like it. And they don't thank us for it. So pray with me. 
And if the Spirit says something to you, if you have some sense of God saying, yes, I want you to walk away from that, I want you to stop that, or yes, I want you to embrace that, I want you to move towards it, then do it. Because everything he says is good. Remember, you're beloved. Everything he says to you is because he loves you. Because he wants you to become more like his son. His son learned obedience through what he suffered. Pray with me. Uh, Jesus, we confess <laughs> there are things in our lives that, 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 that they're, they're the old us. They're the things from before we knew you. I know you don't like these things. I know you don't want me to indulge these things. And yet they, they call to me. They tell me over and over again how important they are, how much I need them. And Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for all those overarching desires of their old lives, that Holy Spirit, you would point them out to us and give us the courage to abstain. Give us the courage to say no, to walk away. We will not be these people. We will not do these things. We can't do that without you, Lord. Give us the courage to do that. And then, Holy Spirit, show us what, where do we need to live our lives openly and in front of the non-Christian world, though they won't thank us for it, and they're not pleased, though they accuse us of being evildoers. Where are the places for each of us? Because I know they're different. We're not all in the same families. We don't all work in the same companies. We don't all live in the same neighborhoods. We're not all in the same situations. Where are the places for each of us, Lord, that we need to live such good lives before these people that one day they will acknowledge it, that you will get glory, Jesus, when you return. Even though it doesn't happen today, it will. Just like Peter told us, we set our hope on the return of Christ. That's when everything works out. Not here, not now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each of us now, as we take communion, as we remember what you have done for us, then as we sing again and worship you, speak to us. Is there anything in our life that we need to abstain from? That it, it, It's trying to kill us, and it's pretending to be our friend, and we need to get away. Is there any place in our life where, where we are not living our lives well, openly, in front of the non-Christian world? We're, we're, we're shrinking back. Is there any place where we need to embrace living well so that people see it. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Show us. We don't know ourselves, but you do. You, you can enlighten us. You can show us the truth. We want to obey you, Jesus. We want to become like you. We want to do what the scriptures tell us. We want to walk away from those things that are not of you, and we want to run to those things that are. But we need your help, Lord. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. We love you and we're yours. Amen.